Good morning again. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll be looking this morning at verse 4. We spent the last couple weeks looking at these different attributes of God. The first week we looked at God's incomprehensibility, this idea that our God cannot be comprehended, He cannot be fathomed, He is immeasurable in His goodness, wisdom, power, and might. We looked last week at this doctrine of God's aseity, His self-sufficiency and independence from all that He has created, that He is of Himself, and He has the fullness of life in and of Himself. And we turn now this morning to the doctrine of divine simplicity or what we might call the simplicity of God. And as we come to this attribute, I think for many of us, we come to something very new. Maybe a word we have not heard in reference to God or as an attribute of God. I know I never grew up hearing this word in the church that I grew up. This concept was never discussed. I never heard this word talked about as an attribute of God. But in reality, this is not a new word to describe who God is. It's not a new concept. Rather, it's actually a very old and ancient way of speaking about our great God. It's been confessed throughout the church for the last 2,000 years. Really, only up until the last 250 years during the Enlightenment did this attribute of God fall out of vogue. And the the sort of irony of this doctrine, right, divine simplicity, the irony is that it's not so simple. (laughs) It's not always easy for us to comprehend or understand this. It's sort of been likened to a builder who goes to build a house, right? When we do the work of theology, we're gathering materials, we're seeking to understand these things that God has revealed to us in his word. And some of these things are very easy for us to gather, right? The love of God, the holiness of God, they're made very clear in scripture, very perspicuous, other of, others of them require a little bit more work on our end, more work to gather these materials together, and simplicity is certainly one of those concepts. But what we're going to do today, and what I hope we see today, is that our God, who has revealed himself in Scripture, is simple, meaning he is not composed of parts or elements that are more basic than himself. He is the one true and simple God of Scripture, most absolute in His existence and in His attributes. All that is in God is God. And from this doctrine, I hope that we'll see this morning that this this understanding of who God is and how He has revealed Himself in Scripture does not compromise other things that we believe about God, like the doctrine of the Trinity. In reality, it actually protects us from going into error surrounding these other truths. And we'll see finally that it actually undergirds what we believe about the gospel and the grace and mercy that we proclaim in these truths. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Moses said to the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he write it upon our hearts this morning. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us 
who you are. By your name and attributes, you make known to us the one who is unsearchable, whose bottom cannot be found out, whose depth has no end. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as we we consider who you are and who have, you have revealed yourself to be in your word, that you would strengthen us by your spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten us to see and understand who you have revealed yourself to be, and that it would give us great confidence and hope this morning as we look to the one who is simple, who cannot be um, divided up or broken up, but is all that he is. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to begin by looking at three different things this morning. We'll look first at the doctrine of simplicity. What does this word mean? What does this concept conveying? What is the doctrine of simplicity? We'll look secondly at the scriptural foundations for this doctrine. Is this found in God's word or is this just sort of metaphysical speculation? And we'll look finally at the love of God and what this tells us about this doctrine of divine simplicity. So firstly, the doctrine of simplicity. You've, you might have heard this word referred to as the doctrine of divine simplicity or, or this confession that God is simple. They all refer to this idea of the simplicity of our God. And we put on the handout this morning a pretty straightforward definition for you that when we say God is simple, what we're confessing is that God is not composed of parts. God is not composed of parts. He is not a composite or a compound being. Rather, all that is in God simply is God. All that is in God simply is God. He is most absolute in His existence and in his attributes. But the question might come to our head, as I already mentioned this morning, is this a new doctrine? I've never heard this word before. What does it mean that God is simple? How do we understand this? And if you go to most recent works of theology or systematic theologies written in the last 150 years, you you probably won't find this word expounded upon. You won't find this in most recent systematic theologies. And so you might think, is this a new doctrine? Is this something that's recent? I saw Jack even posted this week on his Facebook, you know, if it's new, it's probably not true, right? We should have that skepticism. And so you might think, is this a new doctrine? Is this something new? And the truth is, this is actually a very, very old doctrine, In fact, simplicity has been one of the most basic Christian commitments throughout the history of the church. From the patristic era, the church fathers, the first four centuries of this church, this doctrine was confessed all throughout the medieval church, through the Reformation and the post-Reformation, all confessed that God was simple. Irenaeus, who was born in the year 130, so all the way back in the second century, writes these words, God is simple as all the pious are wont to confess. He's saying all the pious confess that God is simple. This was confessed by Athanasius, by Augustine, by Anselm, by Aquinas, by Perkins, by Turretin, by von Maastricht, all confessed that God was simple. In fact, in the Belgic Confession written in 1561, it begins, their confession of faith begins with these words. We all believe in our hearts 
and confess with our mouths that there is a single, simple, and spiritual being whom we call God. The very first words in the Belgic Confession confess that God is simple. But what do we mean when we say these words? What do we mean when we say that God is simple? When we say this, we do not mean that God is easy to understand, that he can be comprehended. We don't mean that he is slow or simple-minded, but rather simple as a divine attribute is opposite of compound or composite. That God, as we've already said this morning, is not composed of parts, either physical parts or metaphysical parts, that he is most absolute in his existence and his attributes, that all that is in God is God. Our confession this morning, we confessed that God is a most pure spirit without body, meaning he is spirit. He is without passions. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. And he is without parts, meaning he is simple that he is pure act. And you might think to yourself, okay, that's great, Kindle. (laughs) Why is that important? Why is that significant? Why would we take a whole week to look at this doctrine of divine simplicity? Surely God is actually complex, right? Surely God is complex. Therefore, he has to have many parts to him. But the confession of the church has been that God is simple. He is not composed of parts. Why is this significant? Because anything composed of parts depends upon something to be what it is. It depends on two things, namely. It depends on the parts itself, elements that are less than the whole, and it depends upon a composer, a source of unity to put the parts together. This is true of all created or caused things. All the way from your kid's Lego house, it's, it's dependent on the parts and it's dependent on your, your child, or maybe you if you like to play Legos, to put it together. It's dependent on the parts, and it's dependent upon a composer. This is true of family recipes of your family car. They're all dependent upon parts and someone to put them together. Andrew and I actually had the privilege of getting to go to Ohio last year and get to hear Dr. James Dozell, who's a contemporary Reformed Baptist scholar, speak on this subject of divine simplicity. And he actually uh, got to have lunch with Andrew, and they were sitting down and, and hamming it up, and he found out that Andrew buys and sells cars. And so during his lecture, he used this example, I'll never forget it, of a Toyota Corolla, right? A Toyota Corolla is a composed, created thing, right? They don't just come off the assembly line at the Toyota factory, right? They're composed of parts, elements that are more basic than the whole. An axle and a steering wheel and exhaust, all these things make up a car to be what it is. And so a Toyota Corolla is not only dependent upon the parts to be what it is, but it's dependent upon someone to put them together, right? These parts don't just magically or randomly come together. Rather, someone, a composer, a source of unity, has to assemble them and put them together. And so this is true of all created or caused things. We're all made up of parts and depend on someone to put them together. But this is not the case with God. And this is what we are confessing in divine simplicity, that God is not composed 
of elements or parts that are more basic than himself. And he does not depend on someone or something to put him together. Rather, all that is in God simply is God. And when we confess divine simplicity, we're not only saying what God is not, that he is not composed of parts, but we are also making a positive assertion about God, that in the purest sense, God is one. God is one. And that's what we see in our scripture passage this morning. That leads us to our second point, scriptural foundations for divine simplicity. We see in, in Scripture the foundations for this doctrine in God's singular perfection and His pure actuality of being. That when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we hear what is often referred to as the Shema, which was the daily prayer of the people of Israel. Hear, O God, Wait, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was a confession that the God of Scripture is not like the gods of the nations, not like the idols that the, the pagan people worship, that the God of Scripture is not made by human hands, is not composed of parts or elements, is not subject to change or decay, but the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uncomposed, singular in his perfection, and in the purest sense, we can say that God is one. He is simple and singular in his being. This was really the grounds of what we call monotheism, that we believe and confess that there is only one true and living God, that God simply is. This is what we spoke about last week when we looked at God's name in Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. God simply is of himself. We could look to places like John chapter 4, verse 24, where Jesus says to the woman at the well, God is spirit. God is spirit. What does Jesus mean when he says this to the woman at the well? God is spirit. Notice he doesn't say God is a spirit as if God is one spirit among many classes of spirits, like angels are one angel among many classes of angels, but he says that God is spirit. The post-Reformation theologian uh, Pietrus von Maastricht said, God is spirit from himself, from no other. That God, we could say, is a pure being, as our confession says, a most pure spirit. No body, no parts, God is spirit. God is simple. And I think it's helpful for us to think about it in this way because we confess and we believe that angels are spirit, meaning they are immaterial. They don't have a body. But angels are not pure beings in the way that we confess God is a pure being, is a pure spirit. And I don't mean pure in the sense of morally pure. The, the perfect angels are pure in that sense. But angels are not pure in the way that God is a pure being and a pure spirit. Even though angels are spirits, and we confess and believe that, they are composed of parts more basic than themselves. And what we, when Jesus says God is spirit, he is saying that God is Simply spirit, a pure being from none and of none. 
You could also look to places like Romans chapter 11, verse 36, where Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Sam Renahan says this, If all things are from him, then he is from nothing. (laughs) If all things are from him, then he is from nothing. And so we conclude that God is the most pure and simple being. This is what Scripture confesses. This is what Scripture makes clear. That God is one. That God is spirit. God is simple. So the the Scriptures clearly teach this. The, The Scriptures clearly confess this. But what's so amazing What's so amazing about this is that Scripture also makes clear that God's simplicity is not just some abstract, metaphysical, theological thing that we can just think about in our minds, but we see that Scripture shows us that God's simplicity is actually the foundation and the immovable confidence of God's eternal love for His people and His perfect covenantal love for them in Christ. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the love of God. The love of God. That we read this morning in our assurance of pardon from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And we see there that when John the Apostle says that God is love, he is not saying that love is a part of God. He's not saying that love is an aspect of God that can change or diminish or something external to God that God participates in or somehow has to subscribe to. Rather, what John is saying when he says that God is love, he is saying that love is simply what God is. That when we confess that God is simple, what we are doing is confessing that God is most absolute in His existence and in His attributes. We are saying that God's attributes are not things that He possesses. They are not parts or sections of Him that can be lost, diminished, or divided up. God is not the sum of His attributes. God is not some being that when you put goodness and and holiness and justice together, you get this being that we call God. Rather, because God is simple, God's attributes are God Himself. God is love. God is light, 1 John 1.5. That because God is simple, all of God's attributes are identical with His very essence. What does this mean? That love is not something that God possesses, a part of Him that can be diminished or lost. Rather, love is what God is. This is what John means when he says, God is love. God is justice. God is holiness. God is goodness. And this is the foundation of our confidence before God. This is the foundation of our comfort as God's people. The doctrine of divine simplicity. Because this means that God's perfections and attributes are as eternal and unchanging as He is. 
His love does not go up and down as our love does. God is love. God is justice. God is goodness. Because the truth is we will all struggle with questions as believers in Christ. We'll struggle with questions in our Christian lives. How can we know that justice will ultimately be done? How can we be sure of God's promises for us in Christ, in the gospel, in the covenant of grace? How can we know that God will always be loving? And the answer is because God is not loving, He is love. Love is not something that He participates in. It's who He is. Justice is not something that God subscribes to outside of Himself. It's who He is. God is just. God's attributes are not parts of God that are sometimes in conflict with one another. I think this is sometimes how we can mistakenly think about the attributes of God. As if God's holiness sometimes gets in the way of His mercy, right? God really wants to be merciful, but His justice gets in the way of this. Or God's holiness has to give way to God's love. God really wants to be holy, but God's love steps in and and makes up for the difference. No. When we confess in chapter 2 of our confession that God is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, and most just, we are saying that those attributes of God are who He is. And I, I don't think we see this anywhere more clearly than in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically at the cross of Christ. That at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is where the perfect mercy, justice, grace, and love of God meet and sweetly comply together. Because it's on the cross where Christ fully satisfied the perfect justice and wrath of God against our sin by His perfect obedience and His sacrifice of Himself displaying God's perfect justice against sin. But he did this so that he might extend God's perfect mercy and grace to unworthy sinners. Not by diminishing God's justice and holiness, by sweeping our sin under the cosmic rug, but rather by demonstrating his perfect justice and holiness and His eternal love for all those whom the Father had given Him. This is what God has done for us in Christ. That because God is simple, and because He is love, we can be sure of God's promises in the covenant of grace. That all those that are united to Christ by faith will truly be saved. We can have confidence of this, brothers and sisters. We can be sure of God's perfect and eternal love for his people, because God is love. And this in many ways leads us into the application part of our sermon this morning. We'll look at three things this morning by way of application, and the first one is this. We'll look at simplicity and worship. Simplicity and worship. That God's simplicity should lead us to worship him perfectly. 
and I don't mean that we can do that perfectly, but to worship his perfections. That I think that as we step away from this doctrine, we can all admit that these things can be kind of difficult for us to understand. Maybe they're new words, new ideas, new ways of thinking about God, and this can be hard for us to understand. But at the end of the day, this doctrine of who God is should lead us to profound worship and adoration of our God. Von Maastricht says this, knowing the infinite perfection of God's divine essence should lead us to glorify Him. When we stand in awe of the one who is perfect and infinite in and of Himself, our only response should be worship and adoration. We're not like this. (laughs) We might be able to say, one time I was loving, you know, maybe I did do that one loving thing for my spouse or my child, but we don't get to say we are most loving. It is God and God alone who is most loving, most just, and most gracious. He simply is what He is. He is the I Am, uncomposed and uncaused. And only God is all of these things infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. And therefore, He's worthy of our worship. When we come before Him each and every Lord's day, we're worshiping the One who is simple and eternal and infinite in His glory, goodness, and love. And so we can worship Him for who He is. But the second thing we need to look at is the doctrine of simplicity and trinity. The doctrine of simplicity and trinity. And maybe even more broadly, there's a lot of objections to this doctrine in our day. There's a lot of objections to this doctrine of simplicity in our day. Even though historically this doctrine has been the confession of the church, it's not even really just a Calvinistic doctrine. It's actually a very Catholic doctrine in the sense of lowercase c, universal. It has been universally confessed by the church. And yet, there are still many objections to this doctrine in our day. There are people that disregard the doctrine, that distort the doctrine, or even deny the doctrine. Some disregard the doctrine, saying that it's not important, that we can discard it with no real effect on who God is or what we believe about God. Others distort the doctrine, making the doctrine to mean something that it never meant historically, distorting it to include additions to God, relative attributes, covenantal properties, things that people think we can add to God and it not change His simplicity. Others deny outright this doctrine, saying that it's purely philosophical and metaphysical abstraction, that it contradicts other doctors, other doctrines that we confess in God's Word, that we should just stick to the language of Scripture and that we should not confess God's simplicity because it contradicts the doctrine of God's triunity. And I think this is most apparent when we look at these things. Because I think for some of us this morning, maybe you're saying simplicity sounds good. It sounds like a biblical concept, but doesn't that go against what we believe about God's triunity? That He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Doesn't the doctrine of simplicity contradict the doctrine of of the Trinity, that we believe in one God in three distinct persons. If there are real relations in the Godhead, doesn't this mean that there are parts in God? And surely, I think we can think like this, surely as Orthodox Trinitarian Christians, we should 
We should keep the Trinity, and if we have to give up simplicity, then it shouldn't be a big deal. That's how we can tend to think. And so sadly, this has led many to deny this doctrine of simplicity, thinking that it contradicts other doctrines. But this is very important that we see this this morning, that what we need to see is that divine simplicity, far from undermining the doctrine of the Trinity, actually protects the doctrine of the Trinity and undergirds it. Not only by protecting our monotheism, our confession that there is only one God, but also by keeping us from various forms of heresy and heterodoxy. Things like tritheism, that there are really three gods or three centers of consciousness. Or the heresy of partialism, partialism that each person is a part of God, is only one-third of God, and when you get all three persons together, somehow you get this whole person of God. But what we see in Scripture and what is confessed in the great creeds and what is protected by the doctrine of divine simplicity is that each divine person is not a part of God that composes God, but is actually identical with God's very essence. This is what we believe when we confess that the Father is fully God, that the Son is God, that the Spirit is God. As the Athanasian Creed says, each person having the whole divine essence, not part, of the divine essence, not one-third of the divine essence, but each having the whole divine essence. But yet, we confess that each person is really distinct from the other persons. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit, is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father, is not the Son. So what distinguishes one person from another in the Godhead? without contradicting the doctrine of divine simplicity. And the answer is not a set of properties that the Father possesses that the Son doesn't have, nor is it accidental properties or some hierarchy of authority and submission, but rather it is what we refer to as the eternal relations of origin. The eternal relations of origin. That's just a fancy way of saying what we confess in the Nicene Creed that the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is eternally breathed out by the Father and the Son. Steve Duby in his book on Jesus and the, the God of classical theism says this, that the eternal relations in God and them alone constitute the distinctions among the divine persons, because in God, relations are not parts The eternal relations distinguish the persons without dividing. We must distinguish the persons, right? The Father is not the Son. We must distinguish, but we must not divide. I've heard an illustration like this. We must distinguish, right? Just like we distinguish our hand from our forearm, but we we shouldn't separate it, (laughs) right? We need to be able to distinguish these things, but we should not separate them or divide them. That what we're saying really is that God simply is Father breathing or begetting the Son and together breathing forth the Holy Spirit. This is the one triune God of Holy Scripture. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And you might be thinking this morning, I can't comprehend that. (laughs) And you're right. 
You cannot comprehend that, and neither can I. But Scripture teaches it, and so we must confess it, and ultimately, we must adore this God who has revealed Himself in His Word. But finally, we need to see simplicity and the gospel. Simplicity and the gospel of grace. That it can be tempting for us to think, what's the practical application of this doctrine? So what? Why does this matter to us as believers? What is the practical application of God's simplicity? How does this have any bearing on my Christian life? How does this help me when I'm struggling in my faith, when I'm struggling at midnight with with kids that are up in the night? How does this help me when I'm wrestling with my assurance? What is the practical application of the doctrine of God's simplicity? Brothers and sisters, if God is not simple, then everything we believe about the gospel falls apart. It has no footing. It has no foundation. If God is not simple, God is not God. (laughs) Divine simplicity is essential to the gospel we proclaim. Craig Carter says it like this. I thought this was very insightful. We may not preach divine simplicity every Sunday. You might be saying to yourself, thank goodness. (laughs) We may not preach divine simplicity every Sunday, but divine simplicity undergirds the gospel that we do preach every Sunday. That is what makes it possible to confess the gospel that is absolutely and eternally true. That there is nothing behind God making God to be what He is. God is not subject to something outside of Himself making Him to be what He is. God simply is. James Dolzell said this, because God, is, because God is not composed of parts, He cannot fall apart on you. <laughs> it's a little cheesy, I admit, and a little kind of hallmarky, but I think that the truth there is profound and is actually very good news, that because God is most absolute and is not composed of parts, He will not fall apart, as it were, on us. And the gospel that we proclaim is absolutely and eternally true because the God we serve is absolutely and eternally simple. That we can proclaim the law and the gospel. We can proclaim God's goodness and God's holiness. We can proclaim absolutely that God is perfectly just. That He doesn't subscribe to some system of justice outside of Himself where we could somehow pay Him off. No, God is justice. We can proclaim the law to the unbeliever that as long as you are a sinner and remain in your sin, you will be condemned and judged. That God is just. He will punish sin because He is perfectly and unchangeably just. But we can also proclaim absolutely that God is gracious. That He has promised that all those who trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. That all those that are united to Him can have true assurance because God's perfect justice was poured out on His Son. And we now stand clothed in the robes of Christ's pure righteousness not because of ourselves or our actions, 
but because of what Christ has done. So when God looks at us, he does not see our actions or our good works, but he sees the perfect blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can proclaim the absolute justice and holiness of God in the law, and we can proclaim the absolute grace and mercy of God in the gospel because our God is simple. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the mercy that you've given us in Christ that we did not deserve, that we did not earn, that even our best works are as filthy rags before you, but because of what Christ has done, we can stand before you a perfectly holy and just God who is holy, who is just, and we can stand assured of our salvation. How can it be? Because Christ's perfect righteousness, who was God incarnate, took our place who perfectly fulfilled your law at every point, never failing, and yet took the perfect justice of God and wrath of God that our sin deserved so that we might stand before you. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us confidence and hope in the gospel, that we do not stand by our own merit, but we stand in the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. May this assure us of our salvation as we have faith in Christ. May it give us confidence this morning. And as we contemplate and think about you, the one simple and spiritual being who is God, we, we stand in awe. We cannot comprehend, but we can adore and confess that you are who you are. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.